G'day and welcome to Property Australia's favourite obsession. My name's Jeremy Cowden and this is a podcast where I get to talk about my favourite topic and one that Australia is and always has been obsessed with. See, we're here to talk about property and what you're about to hear today is it's not just us Aussies who are obsessed with land. See, today we're going to travel back in time and together we will see that no matter how much things change, they just still stay the same. Those of you who have followed my work for a while would have heard me say over and over again, same, same, but different, that history repeats, that as much as things change, they don't. But history can't repeat exactly because of things like investor memory and technological advancements, changes in the government and the law and the evolution of society, just to name a few things. But history does have an uncanny knack of rhyming. And history shows us that as humans, we always have and always will have a connection to land because our very existence depends on it. And if we view history within the context of the time, we will see the five drivers of property prices are always apparent. And this episode's no different. It's all about those same five drivers that underpin and continue to propel property prices higher and higher. See, today we're traveling back in time to ancient Rome to see all our drivers in action. And to help guide us around the ancient empire of Rome is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, Associate Professor at La Trobe University. Now, I was first introduced to Rhiannon by a friend of mine, Ian, my business partner, who sent me a link to a podcast that Rhiannon co-hosts called The Emperors of Rome. That's a hint. Go and have a listen. The link's in the show notes. Because when I heard it, I just thought, wow, there are those drivers again. If you can recognize the drivers in an ancient society, then hopefully I can help you recognize them in today's. So with a big PAFO thanks, Dr. Rhiannon Evans, welcome to Property, Australia's favorite obsession. Very pleased to be here. Oh, Rhiannon, you nearly turned me down for this podcast, didn't you? I did. I felt that I'm not an economic historian. I'm much more of a cultural historian who looks at written texts. Uh, But I was chatting to my husband and saying, I don't think I can do this. All I know about Roman uh, economic history is this, this and this. And I talked at him during a dog walk and he said, that sounds like quite a lot. (laughs) So I said, yes. I think you've got a fantastic story to tell. And I'm really excited about this because it just pulls so many different facets together of what our podcast is actually about um, with regards to the drivers and and the way in which society works and uh, and the fact that history just continually repeats. So I'm really keen to get into this one. But I wanted to start with, you know, when I think of when I think of Rome, I think of of the gladiators, I think of the Colosseum, you know, that that vision of of, of Russell Crowe, um, you know, dressed in in all his glory, um, you know, in front of 50,000 people. I mean, that's immediately what I think about with Rome. But what does it mean to you? Well, I guess actually a few things. Um, My first introduction to it myself was through the language and reading the poetry uh, and reading ancient historians. Um, But then I came to realise that it's, it's not just beautiful poetry. It's a very stratified society with, you know, it's a slave society. uh, And there are estimates that probably around 25% of the population of the city of Rome were slaves. And, you know, the the economy and the society doesn't exist without that. Uh, And I feel like a lot of people study ancient Rome without, maybe not anymore, but in the past have sort of brushed that under the carpet. And um, we talk today about uh, disparity of wealth. But we, I don't think 
it, even in the the whichever society you would pick, and I, I don't know, maybe it's the US with the highest disparity uh, going from the very poorest to the most wealthy, I don't think we could get close to ancient Rome. So in common with a lot of ancient societies, you know, there will be people who are practically starving, quite a lot of people actually, yeah. and a lot of people getting by. Uh, that changes over time how they do it, which is one of the things we might talk yep. about because property is an important part of that. And then at the top, yep. you have just an incredible level of wealth, which only becomes more wealthy over time in the period that we usually talk about ancient Rome. So we know a lot about, say, between 200 BCE and 200 CE. Right. The, the wealthiest people, not just the emperor, but the senators, uh, the people who make a lot of money from trade or land, that we can't even, I, I don't think I could even write down on paper how much more they have than those at the bottom of society. It's just a huge gap. So it's a very unfair well, society. Of, well, when the bottom of the society doesn't even control their own lives, that they're, you know, owned by someone else. I mean, it's a, it doesn't get much lower than that, does it? It doesn't. And, and you know, to, I, I don't hate ancient Rome. I it could sound like I do. It's certainly not the only slave society from antiquity or from more recently. And some people would say that the Romans give their slaves more of a chance than many slave societies, because you can, if you get freed, you become a Roman citizen, which is a big deal. Yeah. That does not happen in a lot of slave societies. And we'll get into this a little bit later, but I mean, some slaves, um, uh, you know, really did have a, a a very strong bond to their masters and such, and were given a lot of um, a lot of leeway as such to, to to do things and act on their own behalfs, weren't they? That could certainly be possible. And uh, I, actually, I, this is a slight aside, which I apologise for in advance. But uh, on our podcast, where one of the things we're doing currently is rewatching HBO Rome. Uh, you know, the series um, with uh, Hugh Hines as Julius Caesar from two thousand and five. And the, yep. there's often a slave advisor. Caesar himself has an advisor there who just kind of tells him like it is. And so don't do this. So this is going to get you into trouble. And um, yep. the my co-host is always saying to me, don't you think you just get a slap for saying that? And I said, well, <laughs> in fact, you know, it's, yeah. it, there were slaves who were trusted in that way. But we shouldn't romanticize it. Life for a lot of slaves was just dire. You know, they might be in the Yeah, really harsh. So when we think about the Roman Empire, I mean, it's pretty clear that they were obsessed with land. I mean, that was the whole thing about the empire, expanding the empire, wasn't it? Is gaining further territories and owning and controlling um, those territories. What what do you think really drove their obsession with land? What was what was the driving factor for them? Well, you know, in a way, they are very, very lucky early on, and they take they are in a position where they come into conflict with already established empires. So when they defeat Carthage from North Africa in 146, they don't just defeat the city of Carthage. Carthage has a huge empire along the top of North Africa and in Spain and islands around the Mediterranean. So they kind of luck into an empire. But they've already kind of on the road to creating what you might call a mini empire by conquering Italy. So these days we sort of yeah. think of Italy and ancient Rome as synonymous, but that is not true. Rome started as yeah. a tiny little Hicksville you know, place on a few hills, not even seven of them to start with. Uh, and it conquered Italy and it sort of wiped out a lot of the culture of Italy, certainly their languages. So there's that. It, it comes from, it seems to me, uh, a real emphasis on militarism. 
So it's mm -hmm. it's about that uh, kind of having control over areas around you. It also comes from being a very agrarian society and throughout antiquity, Rome does remain that to an extent. Yeah. So needing the land yeah. to, uh, to provide more for uh, the citizens. It also, I think, comes from what you might call their generosity with citizenship, which I've already mentioned, but it's not just slaves. They will welcome in and uh, allow in peoples from everywhere they go all right yeah. so while they could be very brutal and were very brutal and you know there might be mass slaughter if the romans conquered you there might also be some kind of agreement some kind of treaty made whereby certainly the local elites are made roman citizens so they want to integrate people into that so i don't know if that's a very straight answer partly because the beginnings of this are very very early so the conquest of Italy yeah. is in the fourth century BC, and we just don't know very much about it. But it becomes, it's not just a kind of, we need more land and a land grab. It is kind of about building an empire, you might call it an empire of influence. And that means you're incorporating more and more people and they take, you know, they take up and maybe you're already living in huge tracts of land. And this is why they end up with an empire that goes from northern Britain to southern Egypt. A huge area. Oh, it's just massive, isn't it? The land expanse is 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 quite staggering. And I want to break down a little bit of our conversation into our five drivers. And I guess this is a pretty good segue into. Um, normally, we wouldn't cover this driver first off, but government granted licenses. But I think in this context, it's important that that we start here. Um, and my understanding from a little bit of research that I did that. Rome's seen as having produced one of the longest running legal systems in history. Um, and part of that componentry was the idea of private property rights. Yeah. If, would you like to maybe talk a little bit of that in the context of maybe the 12 tables? Um, and especially, I guess, you know, those tables with regards to, you know, acquisition and possession, as well as um, those involved in the rights of land. Okay, so the, you, you've done some homework. The 12 tables goes way, way back to the earliest law code that we know of from Rome, from 450 BCE. Um, and it seems to lay out, it lays out a variety of, of uh sort of things that continue in legal codes and some of them become anachronistic and outdated um, for society and for property and, and economics. Um, but it, it does lay out amongst other things that ro early Roman citizens kind of have an allotment of land. And this is the kind of agrarian system that we get from this that, uh, and it sort of becomes a Roman ideal. They romanticize it a lot that uh, a male Roman citizen will have this small amount of land, will farm for himself and might be able to sell some of it. And, and by the way, the other side of that is that he owes to the Roman state his basically his body as a soldier. So there is yes. no professional army. This is the, the Roman landowner um, also has to just drop it all and go off and fight for Rome when the time comes early on. Um, that does, you know, they have a professional army eventually. They don't conquer a whole empire just by having farmers leave yeah, their yeah, plows and come yeah. in. But that, that's what's... Farmers pitchforks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, look, and this is... Although this is one of the ways... Although the, Rome, the, the Roman army does a lot better than pitchforks, mind you. <laughs> yeah, indeed. 
uh, and they do become professional. But uh, early on, this is this is a reality. And so, you know, presumably at that point, it was a much more equal society in terms of property because there was, I mean, you have, they no longer have a king at that point. They do have consuls and a senate. This is, the emperors are hundreds of years away. They're not coming for a long time. Um, But they do have uh, what seems to be a fairly equal distribution of land, but that is going to change. And... Within those twelve tables, too, I mean, it 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 talks about property rights inclusive of of slaves, etc., and um, the the rights to be able to buy and sell essentially with some level of title, I guess you would call it. And again, my research sort of shows that I was a bit surprised about this that there were essentially real estate agents that helped facilitate transactions within these land markets, weren't there? Uh, indeed, there were, and of slaves as well, of course. So, yeah, yep. it, from very from very early on, they are, um, you know, land is wealth for the Romans. It really lies at the bottom of it. So it's not surprising that it it can be a profession to deal in land. Mm. Um, and indeed, it's culturally it's the only it's the only way that's seen as honourable to make money is through land. All right. So it's not just in terms of the way their economy works. It's also if you if you I don't know, if you're a dancer, dancing is particularly bad. Or if you cook food, those are not honorable ways of making money. But if you've got land and that land is being worked, probably not by you (laughs) because the really honorable ones will have enough money to get other people to do it. Then that is that's kind of we would say the marker of a gentleman or something like that. So, yeah, it's the buying and selling of land and particularly, and this is why it starts to change from the time of the 12 tables, uh, the amassing of land is what gives you the wealth that means that you have access to, as a man, women have no access to this, to um, standing for political office and having real power. So it's connected to their political lives. So that would be very different to many of the tribes and cities and civilizations that the Roman Empire um, uh, overthrew, wouldn't it? That a lot of those, especially, you know, some of the smaller tribes, um, uh, you know, that up, up north, etc., that that they wouldn't have had ownership of land as such. They lived, you know, off the land as such, you know, more of a tribal community that, you know, the whole privatization and ownership of land would have been quite different for them, I would imagine. Yeah, well... One of the things we have to be careful about is that we don't know as much as we'd like to about those primarily Celtic Uh, people, you know, where I come from in Britain. That's how the Romans characterized them. They often, especially the Germanic peoples, and they regarded them as very barbaric and tough. Um, And the Britons as well, pretty much. But they often say, oh, they have all land in common. And that means, you know, that they don't have individual property. And they often attach that to um, they have wives in common which is an interesting kind of way of doing thought processes that, you know, if the, the land is belonging to everybody, then the women are belonging to everybody. Well, but if, you, if you care about land, then you have kind of marriage, you have monogamy, um, which we don't have to believe the Romans, but that's a connection they made, which I guess is an insight into how they see themselves, that they own land yeah. and they have, they have one wife at a time. 
right? I, I could talk to you for ages about how easy divorce is for ancient Romans, but that's not why we're here. But it is, uh-huh. but, but legal marriage is just with one woman. And that's how they see it differently from those weird foreigners from the north. And that also is how they see their relationship with land. All right. And, and it's part of this. The barbarians don't really know what to do with it. They don't know how to parcel it out. They don't know how to, to you know, have proper civilization like we do. And that's why they're so backward in Roman times. Well, I can tell you in my thorough research, reading Asterix and Obelix, <laughs> that they they laughed at those silly Romans and they certainly didn't own any land as such. They just went out and hunted wild boar. Yeah, uh, and uh, and look, it is it's it's not true that the the northern Europeans didn't have any. Uh, certainly, they farmed the land. Some of them, but there were some of them were hunter gatherer societies, and that's what results in this way of seeing them. Um, but of course, the Romans were in contact with other what they would have called much more developed societies and even older societies yep. like Greece and Egypt, where we do have written yep. texts, so it's a bit easier to talk yes. about them. Um, and uh, I'm certainly not an expert on Greece, but they they have you know, Greece isn't just one; it's not just one culture. They have lots of different um, city states with different uh, ways of dividing up property. But uh, we know the most about Athens, and they certainly have land ownership and the ability to sell, and also a slave society. So, so this is not something the Romans invent. But I guess partly because I mean, you referred to the twelve tablets. The Romans were obsessed with law, so they're really, yeah. they really they love to sue people for one thing, um, and they like to have everything tied up in law, and therefore they wrote it down more, and that's why we know a little bit more about their obsession with property and law. It's interesting that they're, you know, you say about that obsession with law, yet it seems, and again, only from my very limited understanding, that it was really quite a corrupt society. Oh yeah, absolutely, especially politically. So uh, most people get into office by means of bribery. Um, and uh, while that it's possible because they're, they're obsessed with legal cases, it's possible to put someone on trial for that. It's also probably impossible to get into power without it. So given that we know it was corrupt at that level, we can probably extrapolate yeah. that there's corruption in terms of transfer of property um, and yeah. uh, you know paying off those officials you were talking about, the the, those who deal yeah. with land developing and land sales. Uh, yeah, that, that is pretty normalised, I'm afraid. We can't really look up to the Romans as honourable in that way. <laughs> and, of course, also, they don't have a police force. While they're obsessed with law, they, they don't have the kind of means for um, ensuring that people are punished or caught even if they do, if they break the law in some way. So there's, you know, you might well have, if you're a rich Roman, you might well have a kind of private police force, a bodyguard who will go out and do your bidding. It is a brutal society, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, right. That's, I didn't realise that. That's, I kind of assumed that the army, I guess, you know, now I'm thinking about it, I don't know really what I was thinking, but just almost assumed that the army would have stepped in and played that dual sort of role. But There are local magistrates, um, um, and of mm-hmm. course the army will operate in provinces. So once the Romans start building an empire, the army will operate there if the local governor or lower down official who's in charge of them tells them to. But within Rome itself, the army cannot enter or shouldn't if it does its civil war. 
So the army yeah, is right. not keeping in control within Rome. Um, and again, you can, you can, you know, you can bring someone up before a local magistrate and say they stole my slave, part of my property, or they're farming on the edge of my land or something like that illegally. Um, so there are ways of bringing someone to court, but without a police force, that becomes much more difficult. I mean, you can imagine yeah, other yeah. people fall through the cracks. Yeah, okay. So sort of following that 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 thought process of the army, just like you said originally, um, you know, that, that those who owned, the, or owned and worked the land um, had a responsibility to serve if required. Um, later on, as the empire developed, um, again, my understanding is that you again um, had um, soldiers becoming professionals as, as such. Um, and a lot of those soldiers were rewarded with land grants or paid in land grants. Is, is, is that correct? And, and how does that sort of you know, work obviously is the bigger the army got, then that creates more and more problems for the emperor to to pay uh, soldiers and supply them with land. And I mean, that's obviously going to create a whole lot of chaos as well. It does. And it actually feeds into a big land crisis, which which has other causes too. But from 90 BC, uh, there's a professional army. Um, some of those armies become quite uh, aligned with individuals in Rome, which shouldn't really happen. But then people like Julius Caesar have to find somewhere to put their veterans when the war's over. So this idea, yeah. this, this problem, if you like, of where are we going to get the land for the veterans is one of the things that uh, really dogged Roman politics throughout the first century BC. And, and the people who win, who are seen as winning, like Julius Caesar until he's murdered, um, and Pompey until he's also murdered, they find land for, yeah, brutal society, as I said. <laughs> they find land. They manage to push through laws that allow them to find land for their veterans. And it might be in northern Italy or it might be further afield in a growing empire. Um, but And it's, it's a social problem, too, because you want to reward the veterans um, but also you don't want all these soldiers, these ex-soldiers, to end up back in Rome because they might cause trouble. So land is yeah. kind of a solution to this potential social problem. However, it's maybe less of a problem than you think because you're meant to serve 26 years in the Roman army before you're allowed out. <laughs> so so uh, right, not, if you survive... Can imagine the amount of people... <laughs> that's exactly right. like to see the stats on that and who made it out the other side, 26 it, of years course, of like a lot, And I should say, like a lot of Roman regulations or laws... Uh, it's not always, nah. they don't always obey it exactly, especially in the time of the civil wars, which is the time I'm talking about in the mid first century BCE here, that they build up, they amass huge armies and they have to disband them probably before some people have carried out their full service. So that is one of the reasons they need land. But there are other reasons um, in the first century second to first century BCE, which I don't know if you want me to go into that here because I might be getting off track. Well, let's have a crack. Yeah, no, <laughs> let's have a crack. Yeah, uh, this is this is kind of where land and Roman history seem to be linked most strongly. From about 140 BCE, it becomes really clear that there's a huge crisis with Roman land because those rich people who are becoming richer and richer because Rome's building a land empire and, you know, they're importing the slaves and importing yes. other really valuable things and selling them and making more money and buying more land. So there's no longer any pretense that we've got this equitable distribution of land. 
what we've got now is some people with what we call latifundia, which literally means a broad estate, a huge estate, where they don't mm-hmm. need the people who used to own that land to work it anymore because they've just brought slaves in to do it. And yeah, the people, right. who, people who don't own that land anymore or their children now have nowhere to go to, to grow their food. So they end up in the city of Rome because that's where you go if you can't live off the land anymore. Let's go to the city and see if we can make money there. And so Rome is full of this, what we call the landless poor, and other areas have too much, too many of these landless poor as well. And this is leading to a social and political disruption. And from about from 133, there are individuals in politics who are trying to do something about it. Because generally as a class, the senatorial class, there's nothing in it for them. They're the ones who own these huge tracts of land, who are making huge amounts of money out of growing grain or you know, maybe honey that'll be exported or whatever it is they're using this land for, why would they want to redistribute it to deal with these landless well, exactly poor? Exactly right. No but, need to, is it? No, absolutely not. But there is a political office that is meant to represent the people. All right. And some uh, periodically, about every 10 years from that period on, one of these guys who's called a tribune of the plebs tries to deal with it. So the first one of them is Tiberius Gracchus, then his brother Gaius Gracchus, and then every yeah. 10 years someone else, they always get murdered. All right? They will be murdered by a senator, well, not the senators themselves usually, but a mob. Who worker. would have ever thought? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who would have ever thought the vested interests just yeah. somehow get their way once again? Yeah. And these people are depicted as, you know, they're just, they're populists, they're feeding what the ravenous mob wants. Um, but they are, oh, yeah. and there are actually often parallels made between the rise of populism now in political culture and what these men were trying to do. But what they were trying to do was to, well, I guess some people think that current populists are trying to redress a real problem. Um, but certainly for ancient Rome, there was just this huge mass of people with nothing, even in ancient terms, while the rich were getting incredibly wealthy. So eventually Julius Caesar takes care of it, basically. He comes to power, and that's the reason that the Republic dies, because the only way to deal with this is to have a dictator who says, this is going to happen. We're going to redistribute land. My veterans are going to be here, um, all right? And nobody, you know, we've got to deal with this. This is a problem. We've got to turn the whole of Italy into Roman citizens and give them equal political and land rights. Um, So, you know, he's the one that really deals with it, but he deals with it by becoming a dictator, and that's why he's murdered. Yeah, right. That's very interesting. I applaud you there. (laughs) It is. Oh, not at all. It's quite fascinating. I mean, again, as you said, though, you're pointing out that we're just seeing the same same things over and over and again throughout history, aren't we, the – that um, you know, the the concentration of of land ownership, you know, creates all sorts of other societal issues that um, you know, can become very problematic. Um, and as you said, you know, that that whole distribution of 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 the soldiers and it's just and the corruption that goes with it. It's it's understandable, especially when land is such a store of wealth for them and 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 creates the wealth that obviously you're going to have that propensity for those to um you know to try and own and control and and you know who wants to relinquish you know when you're sitting on the um uh, on the gravy train and i'm not saying that caesar comes along and creates some kind of i don't know socialist Utopia. paradise <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's absolutely not what happens the wealthy remain extremely wealthy in rome throughout the whole period mm. and julius caesar in fact will be one of the wealthiest of them all. 
Um, and there's still a lot of store in if you come from an elite family. Um, but there is a kind of smoothing out of it to the degree that it's not as much of a problem anymore. And of course, we never go back to that political structure where there is an oligarchy, a rich few people in charge. We After yep. Caesar, we get an emperor. So there's one man in charge. So what he says goes, yeah. essentially. So I want to maybe just change tack a little bit um, that it's often said that the key to the Roman Empire's growth was their engineering feats, um, their ability to build infrastructure, you know, and we're talking all sorts of, of stuff, um, you know, amphitheaters, baths, um, but, you know, things, you know, they're the things that we, I guess, we typically think of, but the whole idea, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on just the aqueducts because to me, that is a really, really big step forward um, and creates the ability for, you know, Roman civilization to develop much further than they would have been able to without it. And and it's very easy for us to sit here and, and you know, look at the, the, the aqueducts that they build and think, well, that's nice. But in its time, I mean, that was the 5G of its day, wasn't it? That was the thing that, you know, that, that's big technology, isn't it? It is. And and I think you're right. We don't quite appreciate it. They're, I mean, they're huge for one thing. Anyone who's mm. seen one, you know, they'll, they'll, there's, there's one in France and another one in Spain that kind of stretches across a valley. So it's, I don't know, 30, yeah, 50 wow. meters up in parts um, with these enormous arches. I, I mean, I'm tempted, it's a bit flippant, but I'm tempted to say that the Roman invention of the arch is one of the really significant things here because it's just a a strong structure. So if you think of yep. Greek architecture, yep. I mean, yep. it's not all temples, of course, but you think of the pediment um, temple structure. Yep. Um, columns are strong, but arches are much stronger. And stronger. that, and combined with the Roman development of concrete, which is much stronger than our concrete. And I, from memory, that's because it has more sand in it. Oh, actually, no, I think it's more volcanic material. I'm sorry, not sand. I think you're right. It's the volcanic yeah. ash. It's actually interesting. I was wondering whether you were going to say that because um, I've actually, I'm interviewing um, Vince um, Beiser in a couple of weeks' time who um, wrote a very, very interesting book um, a, a, about sand and how you know sand is the number one element that has enabled society to, um, you know, to advance and and. In my, re I was really stunned to find out that that the um, the ancient Romans actually invented concrete because I mean that is the thing that creates our developed world, isn't it? Without sand and concrete, you know, wh where are we? We're you know, we're living in single story dwellings, aren't we? Yeah, pretty much, and um, and also, of course, it means that we've got a lot of Roman remains because they were built strong to yeah, last. Yeah, good point. Um, where yeah, if you yeah. something avoid, it's just going to disintegrate over time. Um, and and marble, it's kind of finite and very expensive. Mm -hmm. um, yes, if, which you can, other people had quarried that, but the concrete is really important. And people will know the most famous Roman building, the Colosseum, and if they've seen pictures of it, it's got a big hole in one side. That hole is not there yeah. because it fell down. That hole is there because from the Renaissance and even before that, the Italians were just pillaging it to build other things. So it's only it's only ah. at all damaged because they were taking that right hey, because of the recycling that was going on. <laughs> exactly, that's a kind way of putting it. Yeah, so <laughs> it's really tough stuff, and of course that's why these aqueducts were so 
uh, you could put them anywhere. You know, there's a cliche that the Romans build everything straight, the straight roads, but they could because they had the technology to do that. So if there's a hill in the way, well, they could tunnel or they could build over it, depending on uh, what came, what their engineer suggested. Um, and they're not the first to have these incredible engineers. Uh, the Greek world, the Hellenistic world, which is not just ancient Greece, but also you know, northern Egypt, North Africa and modern Turkey, all of that area. They had been they had had a lot of this very scientific knowledge for a long time. Um, and uh, especially in Sicily, which was part of the Greek world you know, for a lot of antiquity, there's a lot of engineering knowledge that comes out of that area. So Archimedes is from Sicily. Um, but the Romans, of course, it, it's, again, um, to a certain extent, you put it down to luck. They have that engineering knowledge. They can kind of piggyback partly on what the Greeks have done and uh, invent for themselves. And they have a lot of manpower, people power, because yeah, yeah, they've yeah. conquered a big empire. And as I say, yeah. part of that is, and it's not just the Carthaginians, they conquer or they actually get gifted the um, the empire of Pergamum, which is uh, a, a Greek empire in modern Turkey. Um, they get the Ptolemies, their empire by conquering Egypt. So they they amass other people's empires. They've got a huge amount of land people, um, also resources. So, you know, they yes. can take marble yep. and other types of stone from all of their empire. Um, that's how they're getting these exotic animals to bring into these arenas when they build them and they export their culture in that way. So if you go to any part of the Roman world, any significant city will have had an arena. It will have had a, a, a Colosseum, an amphitheater. And, you know, any decent, uh, any city worth its salt will have those aqueducts bringing in water, which the Romans didn't know it. But of course, that means you have the potential for hygiene. I mean, they didn't right. understand bacteria and germs uh, yeah. at all. That's yeah. very recently understood. But they it meant they had the potential for being able to wash more and have clean water, uh, which is you know unknown in the ancient world unless you're right by a spring, unless you're by a clean water source, you're not going to be getting that. They had sewers as well, didn't they? They did, yes. They had uh, toilets, communal toilets, lovely. Uh, and uh, drainage to carry away waste and to carry away other kinds of wastewater. And obviously that's really important for um, uh, keeping away disease. Not that disease wasn't, <laughs> it was everywhere, but it does give them the potential in cities where you're living in close, close quarters to at least be cleaner than you might otherwise be. I was just about to bring it back and actually make that point, Rhiannon, that that I want to talk about the cities themselves later, but that whole point of, you know, sanitation and and the ability to use aqueducts to bring water in means that you can have much larger populations in a smaller area, which of course means that from a land point of view, you know, there's going to be less land and it's going to become more desirable, etc. Um, and obviously, you know, the way certainly in today's society that land's price, the more desirable, the the higher the price, it's 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 going to be the same thing within a within a Roman city that the the infrastructure is absolutely um, you know key for those um, for those cities to uh, to survive and expand. But even I wanted to take it a step further, and you mentioned the road system. I mean, the, what the the Romans did there again, it, it is quite unbelievable isn't it the um the level and the amount of roads that were um 
that that were created. Um, my understanding is out of Rome that there were 29 military highways that that spread out of Rome itself, um, and you had you know roads going literally all over the world. Yeah, exactly. And of course, it's a, there's a pragmatic use for it, which you've already really indicated is that that's how you get your army there. Um, so it's it's sort of a Mediterranean world, although it expands beyond it. So you can sail a lot of places. But um, it might be interesting to point out that the Romans thought sailing was a, a mugs game because it's so dangerous. So even though yeah. it, you know Italy is a peninsula, you'd expect them to be sailing all over the place. They kind of prefer not to if you don't have to. Um, obviously, it's a good way of bringing in huge amounts of resources, but uh, with you can uh, the army is sometimes piled onto boats. But the the sort of you read someone like Caesar, the core thing that the army seems to do is march places incredibly fast. And one yeah, of the reasons I they feels... get there fast is there are decent roads and they can build a bridge in apparently five minutes flat from the way he describes it. So if there's a river in the yeah. way, they'll get over it. Um, yeah, and it's so it's really significant for controlling their empire. But it also it's not just the army, isn't it? It it means that you can move, as you said, you know, uh, infrastructure or materials for for infrastructure. Um, it, it facilitates trade, um, the ability to to move, you know, goods and produce, and and of course it's going to make it easier for tax collection and the movement of monies, isn't it? Very much so. Are uh, the tax collectors there? Um called publicani public people always hated but always there um and taking their own little cut as well of course they're seen as very corrupt in antiquity um but uh they yeah exactly they can get around in this way so it is a it, it is a mobile culture there is the potential for that i think in a way Unfortunately, at this point, a massive storm hit and Jeremy lost his power and internet connection. So a few days later, they continued their discussion. Okay, Rhiannon Evans, the Empress of Rome, welcome back to Property Australia's favourite obsession. Great to be here. Now, I have to um, give my sincere apologies for cutting you off. Uh, Last time when we were recording... I had the howling wind in the background and it was freezing cold and uh, torrential rain hitting the roof. And of course, as life goes, we got cut off. I had a blackout, lost my internet. And um, back we are again a week or so later to uh, to continue our uh, discussion. Yeah, I think Jupiter is happier with us this time. He hasn't <laughs> probably. <laughs> I have to say, I'm almost a little bit warm tonight. It's, um, you know, we've had a 30 plus degree day with beautiful blue skies and, um, uh, to keep the hum of the air conditioner off, I've turned it off at the moment, but it's actually a bit warm, I have to say. So quite different to our uh, our environment last time. Indeed, yes. But I've got to say that our uh, well, the blackout in internet outage for me gives a really good segue into our um, uh, our next driver being uh, being technology and and the Romans. There's an awful amount we could speak about here, isn't it? Roman technology is something that is really quite spectacular. We we spoke before 
um, about the roads and the highways and the like, um, and the importance of those. And of course, that leading to you know the frames, uh, the, the phrase that uh, all roads lead to Rome. Um, you mentioned before about the importance of archways uh, in the building of uh, the aqueducts, um, uh, bridges, of course, and their ability to to move water and, and all sorts of stuff. But there's a lot of there's a lot of technological advancements that that we've been left with from the Romans, and I'm not just talking, um, you know, Roman numerals and and the Roman calendar. But there's all sorts of advancements. So is there any particular technologies that sort of jumps out and and, and you know that really uh, inspire you about um, the, the the what the Romans actually did? Well, <clears throat> I discount numerals. Their counting system was hopeless. That's something that was really bad. It's very hard to count their numerals. So uh, we have to we have to thank the uh, Arabic culture for our numbers. But for the with the Romans, um, I think that I don't know if we already talked about hygiene and the importance of uh, water. I guess we talked about aqueducts. So I don't know if we've already covered that. No, we didn't. We we sort of brushed over it, but the, certainly the plumbing and sanitation is a hugely yeah. important area, isn't it? It is, because if you think of, um, apart from the Romans, there are very few cultures where you can have flowing water that goes either near to or into your homes. Uh, although, I mean, most people are going to have to go to a stream or a spring to collect water outside of their homes. But the Romans can actually run water into the home uh, as well as the aqueducts and plumbing, they also have a kind of uh, water collection system in most decent-sized homes, which is uh, easy technology in a way. It's a hole in the roof. So in the atrium, in the hallway, there's a kind of there's a pool that collects water, mm. uh, but that might be decorative. You might not necessarily use it because they also have water that can run into bigger houses, um, and that means that if you are really rich, you could have a, a bath building attached to your home so i mean you could have your private baths if you're very rich that's how good their water supply is um, but even if you're not and even if you're using the public toilets with the rest of the plebs um, there is running water going through those toilets so that is washing away your waste and of course they have uh, and it, they knew it was important it's one of their earliest uh, sort of building technology uh one of their earliest monuments actually in Rome, which is the Cloaca Maxima, the great mm -hmm. sewer. Mm -hmm. And they know how important this is. And they, they think it, it is a really early structure um, in the founding of their city. And it is massive. Um, and if you get a permit, you can still go down into it today. Um, and it, you know, it carries all of the, all of the waste away from Rome. Um, and that means that they have a much better chance of staying disease-free for antiquity. Yeah. We, we have to always say that in terms of antiquity. They don't know about bacteria. They don't know how to stop wounds from festering away, but they do at least have clean water. So they're probably not drinking um, fetid water, water that's going to make them sick and, and maybe kill them. And as you said, those aqueducts, not only bringing the water in, but but continually flushing the sewers to to wash the waste away, and even understand that a lot of the drainage pipes and stuff that were through the city were, um, uh, you know, had uh, had um, coverings on them, etc., to to stop the contaminations coming out, etc., to try and seal them up as best they can. I mean, they were definitely on the right path there, weren't they? 
they were, although there is a theory that uh, the amount of lead in those pipes was what <laughs> might ultimately have led to the fall of the Roman Empire. It's a long bow to draw. Um, but yeah, they weren't as aware of that kind of contamination as we are. But uh, it did mean that they were kind of separated from what is we know now a huge disease vector. So this means that they could have bigger cities, that Rome had a million people before any other city could, centuries before. Um, and, you know, it probably wasn't, I'm, I'm not saying that it was particularly pretty. I'm sure it was really smelly, despite the sewers, or maybe because of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in the context of other civilizations at the time, they were they were miles ahead, weren't they? It, it, was, it was something that uh, does seem to have set them apart and it's something that it's not just in Rome so it's exported throughout the empire so if you go to and I went when when we could travel I went to Vindolanda a couple of years ago which is a kind of Roman outpost at the very edge of the Roman empire in northern England mm -hmm. and it's there's a military it's mostly a military fort and a little town that grows up around it but they have that same system of the water flushing yeah, right. away from their toilets so it's yeah, not right. just not just the the highborn and the in the the elites in the cities that have this. This is the norm for everyday Roman soldiers. But they were pretty clever in lots of ways. I mean, there's lots of technology we can talk about. But I read about their central heating, essentially, that a lot of their houses and um, apartments had, where they would place a like a furnace or, or or heating device underneath the um, the structure, and the ancient engineers built the columns that were hollow so that the hot air would rise throughout the buildings to keep them warm. Yeah, this is called the hypercost, um, which means the heat underneath. Um, and they they have these kind of little columns of bricks usually in a in a sort of an open space underneath the floor. And they, they'll have a furnace somewhere, um, you know, close by, but not actually fire going through it but that is connected by ducts to these spaces between the bricks and it heats up the bricks and the spaces. And then that heat underneath the floor heats the room above. Mm. So um, this is, I've, I want heating like this. The underfloor <laughs> sounds so wonderful for winter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you just keep warm when you're walking around on it. And they have that. And again, it's not just elite houses that have it. It's, it's something that, you know, if, if you're just moderately well off, you might well have in your house. And it's it's a really clever system. It's um, because it's it preserves the fuel that you have to use to heat that uh, that furnace that you have. Um, you know, you're not overusing it. You don't have to buy a lot of or go and cut down a lot of logs. Um, so it's very economical to run. Mm. And uh, even though it gets that cold in Italy, but maybe it is compared to Sydney in winter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was certainly still, cold here yeah. last time we were talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so th there are times of the year when they would be glad of that, of course. Um, and certainly when they're moving to, as I mentioned, the edges of empire, they would want that in Northern yeah, Britain, yeah, that's for sure. Freezing yeah, yeah. gold there in winter, I can testify. But um, we, I mentioned before about the, the Roman numerals, um, and certainly communication is a really important part that um, like the alphabet was developed in ancient Babylon, the Egypt, um, the Egyptians developed the you know the shin, the thin sheets of papyrus. Um, China itself uh, invented paper, but the Romans invented the codex, didn't they? Where they had uniform sheets of um, it wasn't paper, it was a, a um, it was a form of pap uh, papyrus, was it, or a cloth that they used um, that they bound together. 
it can be made of different things, but um, they it, it's it can be plant matter. It can be made from animal skins, the really expensive ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, caudex literally means the bark of a tree. So they were using some kind of tree fiber in there. It's just not as fine as the paper that we think of. Well, we don't have any left because unfortunately it decays or we have very little. But yeah, the, the codex is a book form which um, it, it actually changes over time. So originally, when, whenever you see a drama about ancient Rome, they'll have scrolls, won't they? Oh, of course, yes. Bring out. And they did have those. But around the time of, sometime in the first century CE, they changed to something that's more like a book form. So that, uh, I was going to get a book out and show you, but you know what the book like, looks like. <laughs> We're missing the visuals the here, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> the podcast Sorry, next time. <laughs> Yeah, but it is basically something like our book. So the the leaves that they turn over, which is much more practical than a scroll. Um, And they also have various ways of sending messages, of course, on tablets. This is not Mm. unique to them. Um, But as a result of things like those roads we talked about last time, they can get messages to another place very, very quickly. So so it's like a postal system almost, wasn't it? Exactly. So these two things kind of tie together that because they've got the infrastructure to travel more easily and because they've got technologies that mean you can communicate, uh, that means that they can get these messages to these far-flung points in empire or to you know a military figure who's out on campaign somewhere. And it means that it is easier for them to control what is going on throughout that space, throughout that empire. It's not just about control. And I, I keep talking about my trip to Vindolanda. It's not the only place I've been to, <laughs> but it is very famous for its writing tablets, um, right. which through a quirk of fate have been preserved. They were thrown in with the rubble uh, and kind of buried oh, wow. so tightly that they have been preserved and, um, you know, they've dug, they, they dig, they dug one up the day before I got, before I visited, they find them wow. all the time. And some of them are the most famous one is a birthday invitation, which the oh. wife of the military commander there was sending to her friend. Did you RSVP? Um, uh, we don't know. We don't have the reply, but it's thought to be the oldest writing by a woman that we know of because she added she her scribe would have written it. She'd have had a slave. But at the end, she writes, my dearest, please come. I want to see you. And that is in a different hand. So it seems to be her. So we get these personal insights as well through this writing technology where it's been preserved in very special circumstances. I just want to pick you up on something that you just said a moment ago that is just so crucially important that when you said that you had the convergence of different technologies and advancements coming together, uh, the roads enabling well, the roads um, with the um, uh, their, their early books and scribes, etc., being able to create like a postal service. It, it's no different to like you know the iPhone today couldn't it can't be created in a vacuum. There's lots of other technologies that has to occur. Um, you know you have to have obviously. Um, you know, at least a G3 network, G4, ideally, et cetera. You've got to have uh, microprocessing. There's a whole lot of stuff that has to happen that these technological advancements can't occur in a vacuum. And it's exactly the same thing that's what's happening uh, back in ancient Rome, isn't it? Yeah, and so you're quite right. And, it, and I mean, if we were to trace back what you need to create a, a modern smartphone, I'm sure there are lots of advances that happened, you know, maybe a decade ago, maybe more. That were required for this and indeed uh, you know we need certain minerals and that kind of thing so 
it, in a way, it's the fact that the Romans have this, this extensive empire that means they have access to materials they might need. And I know I was also already talked about this in terms of the marble, the quarrying they could get to, that they weren't just dependent on what was in Italy. They had a, a huge empire to draw on. Um, and literally to draw on if you're talking about writing. Um, so they they don't have that problem that we will have, I guess, eventually, that resources become scanty um, because they they they're not so voracious that they use it all up. Uh, you know, yeah. they've got vast forests if they want to use yeah. any kind of um, technology that they can make from wood. And it's not until, certainly in Britain, it's not until the 16th century that the, the forests all get cut down to build ships. Um, so they've got a lot more resources for what, for what they need than we do, in a way, because we, we've uh, got rid of some of the things that they had then. Mm, it's an interesting concept, isn't it? And, and I just want to take that, the technology, like their military dominance um, do you want to talk about that? Because I mean, again, the technology that flows through their their, their military is not just weaponry, but in organisation um, and the advancement of how they actually fight, their communication systems, their ability to to move soldiers. I mean, would you want to touch a bit on that, Rhiannon? I can I think you've kind of summed it up that it all comes together through. Um, Clearly, and I think that uh, ancient historians, people who study ancient history, used to just concentrate on the military genius at the top. And they had some of those. So, you know, you know some famous names like Julius Caesar and maybe Scipio um, and a few others. Uh, but and that actually becomes increasingly important. So in the imperial period, to, to be emperor, you have to have the army on your side, which often means you've been a general. Mm, so, yeah. so that is significant. Um, they also de they do develop uh, a very strong and um, you might also say almost say collegiate way of fighting. And they point out the differences with other people they fight. That um, the other people, the people on the other side, might be much tougher and stronger and bigger, but they don't have the cohesive qualities that mm. the Romans had in fighting. So they kind of teach. They have this professional army eventually, and they teach them this way of you know one of the most famous formations is if they need a defensive formation, then they put their shields on their head and they form this, this uh, shape called a turtle, mm. which means it's got this shell that protects it. They're yeah, really good from both above as well as you know front on yeah, and side on etc. Yeah, exactly. So the people at the edge will will have the shield in front of them to make to make a complete uh, covering of the whole band of of men. Um, they also use the kind of engineering technology they have to make really brutal siege technological items. So they've got siege engines. Um, they've got uh, they've got catapults. And they yeah. can, you know, they don't tow these around with them necessarily. They can make them on the spot if necessary. Um, so they, they've, they've got the technology to be really brutal and, and kind of terrifying. And often they don't have to fight because their reputation kind of precedes them. So, uh, yeah, they, I mean, they are. They've got a reputation for being very tough military force. And it is true. They are a, a tough military fighting machine. Um, but they also, and I hope I didn't mention this too much last time, so forgive me if I repeat myself, but they also have this mechanism for letting the people of the empire into the army. This is, this is another route into citizenship, potentially. So I think last time I mentioned that ex-slaves, if they were freed, could become yes. 
they had a kind of limited citizenship. This is true for soldiers as well, that it's a route into the benefits that you get from being a Roman citizen. It's a long time that you have to be in the army first for your service, but nevertheless, it can it might be attractive to people from around the empire. But it wasn't just the um, uh, the soldiers, you know, flinging spears and swords and the like. I mean, they also had quite a well developed um, military medical corps, as I understand as well. That you spoke before about the idea of sanitation, etc. That. Um, but they they actually had a trained medical corps that um, used tourniquets and and other um, ways to stop the flow of blood, etc. In battle, didn't they? That um, they were you know very well organised once again. Yeah, and part of that is that they had doctors who worked on the gladiators. So um, if if anyone's heard of any ancient doctor, they might have heard of Galen. And mm-hmm. that's that's one that was one of his jobs at one point was uh, working on the, the the wounds that the gladiators had. So they were relatively good at at that. They knew how to stop blood flow. You know, they knew how to amputate limbs if necessary. Uh, they could do the kind of um, I guess what we think of sort of butchery stuff in a way now. Um, yep. But I have to say, beyond that, you wouldn't want really want a Roman doctor. They're still very dependent on this, <laughs> on this idea that the Greeks also have that you know, which which really subsist you know, continued up until more recently than you'd care to think in Western medicine that we have these four humors and they need to be in balance. Um, so they they don't understand infection, um, and that means that's really significant. So. That even though they had that water, they're not necessarily cleaning wounds um, as, as a matter of practice. But you're quite right, tourniquets would, you know, probably save the lives of many. And and having the gladiators to kind of practice on, having that system. <laughs> what of better species? They get banged up all the time and you want to push them out there. <laughs> yeah, nice and, and tough. Because um, like a lot of periods they uh, of time, they, the doctor and doctors were a bit frustrated by this. They weren't allowed to experiment on dead bodies. So they couldn't really learn more throughout most of Roman history about what goes on in the human body. Um, But they could kind of do it in a limited way by working on gladiators. So it's not just during warfare, although there's a lot of warfare for the Romans, it's not just during that time that they have a chance to work on these these terrible wounds. So certainly not that I would have liked anyone that I've known to to go to endure it, and I'm not sure it was covered under Medicare, um, but... They, um, I know, they, ch- they charged the doctors. They charged, did they? Well, they I, was gonna, did. I, I read also that they pioneered the caesarean, the C-section. Yeah, that's a bit of a myth. <laughs> yeah, okay, interesting. <laughs> yeah, and I think it probably comes from thinking that Julius Caesar was born by caesarean section because of his name. Ah, right. But his mother survived um, his birth. And we're pretty sure that no woman would have survived a cesarean well, birth. Well, I must admit, when I read it, I thought that is really well. That's why I asked the question because uh, it, it it seemed a bit of a, a long bow, but it would have been pretty impressive if they had. Yeah, you know, the boring version is that Caesar's name probably comes from a word that means a lock of hair. So someone in his family had curly hair. Not as not as exciting at all, is it? <laughs> so it could have been called Bluey in Australia. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great general Bluey, interesting. <laughs> so tell me, you, you mentioned before about the size of Rome, and this is really quite 
this is quite staggering. A, mi- a million people living in a city thousands of years ago. Um, again, the mind boggles with the, the the social structure that must be in place uh, for something like that to to occur. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about? You know the social structure. You know you've you've touched on several times about um, that the, the slaves and etc. But you know the senators and 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 how society um, intermingled. Yeah, absolutely. You see all gradations of society there, from the slaves to the very elite, the senators, and eventually the emperor. Um, and it's it's I wouldn't call it a segregated city, but it's a city that does have um, areas that are kind of the the nice suburbs, basically, the very posh suburbs. So if you live on the Palatine Hill, which if you visit Rome now, you can go and visit the remains of the Imperial Palace, where we get the word Mm -hmm. palace from. And the reason the Emperor's Palace is on that hill is that was always the prestigious place to live. So I don't know. What what is it in Sydney now? In Melbourne, it would be Turak. Yeah, well... Yeah, <laughs> that's it for clues or, or or something. Yeah, in Adelaide certainly. Yeah, it'd be Turak or or Melbourne or maybe you know parts of North Adelaide. Yeah, and then you know Rome is pretty small, so a million people is that really packed together. Um, and uh, by the way, it's an estimate. We we can't know for certain. It's an estimate based on uh, all kinds of research, but you know funerary evidence. Um, you know estimates of. Uh, based on archaeology, housing, remains, that kind of thing. But some of them would have been packed together in those sort of, um, they're not quite tower blocks because they couldn't build to that to that height, but they might be, say, four stories of apartment blocks. And if you lived in one of them, then you want to live on the bottom floor, not the penthouse. Yeah. It's the opposite yeah. because of fire. You want to be able mm-hmm. to get out fast. Uh, and there were a lot of fires in Rome. So, you know, the famous one is when Nero fiddled in 64 CE. The Great Fire of Rome, but there's another one in 80. About every 20 years, a big fire that destroys whole swathes of Rome. Um, yeah. Nero, by the way, much as he has a terrible reputation, did bring in changes that meant that it was safer. So he brought in a kind of primitive um, fire service. A fire code, yeah, yeah. right. The Wigilays, the people who watched out, the vigilant ones. Um, and he also brought in codes about how far apart buildings should be so they weren't so close together that the fire could jump easily. So he, he's interested in regulating the city in that way. Unfortunately, four years later, there's a big coup and he no, doesn't survive. Um, and, Welcome to uh, Rome. <laughs> where was I going with that? Oh, yeah. But, you know, very close by because Rome is small. So if you, um, anyone who knows Rome, you can walk down from the Palatine and you're in the Roman Forum. You cross the road that Mussolini built, which is called the, the Street of the Imperial Fora. Um, and over the other side is the forum that the Emperor Augustus built. And remaining of that forum is a huge wall, like, you know, massive wall behind the Temple of Mars that he built there. And that wall was put there so you couldn't see the slums behind it. He didn't want his beautiful marble forum <laughs> made to look a bit scummy by the people who were living this this very sordid life as far as he's concerned. And, you know, that's one of the places that um, the sex workers might hang out and and people are just very poor there. And that is an easy walk. So it's not far from the very elite to the poorest of the poor in Rome. Um, You know what they say, Rhiannon, it's all about uh, location, location, location. And when it comes to property in, in Rome, it's obviously no different. 
yeah, exactly. So they're kind of cheek by jowl, but you know, you need a lot of money to live on the Palatine. If you live on the Palatine, you almost certainly will have a villa out in the Italian countryside, maybe a day's journey away. Um, uh, anyone who goes to Rome can also do a day trip to Hadrian's Villa. The Emperor Hadrian built a villa at Tivoli, it's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it's not really a villa, it's kind of a huge estate. And also they would have, uh, the rich would have villas, seaside villas down in Campania on the Bay of Naples. And that was kind of their playground. That was their, I don't know, Byron Bay, Gold Coast. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, where, where the, maybe Noosa actually, where the rich and, and famous would go and hang out. So they have multiple properties and they will have property that's also working the land, as I mentioned last time, those broad estates to make more money for them. But they'll also have these leisure properties, as opposed to the poorest of the poor who will be living, you know, many people to one of those little apartments in a in a block. Uh, and then in between, um, people who will have their own home and might have a shop out the front, say there'll be a small business person. So mm -hmm. it'll be the same building and the, um, the there'll be a doorway and maybe a couple of windows where they, they might sell their wares or it might be they might run a tavern so there's you know the, they might just have the front room that's part of the tavern and behind that they might have uh well they'd probably have an atrium with that pool in it and behind mm -hmm. that there'd be bedrooms and then kitchens at the back and maybe a garden if they're lucky so uh that's kind of the the middle ground of the sort of housing that you'd find in Rome. and so those um uh those dwellings, those accommodation dwellings um, that you're talking about for the lower class, they were mainly called insulas, weren't they? Where, yeah, um, which literally means an island because it's, yes. it's a block with streets surrounding it, as it were. Because it's interesting, I, I, again, in my research, uh, found that a lot of those were um, uh, were owned by um, the, uh, the elite um, and most of them were rented, weren't they? Yeah, exactly. That's that's your rental properties. Um, the elite make a lot of money out of renting out uh, housing and other kinds of land, farmland as well, potentially, um, and through lending money. Even yeah. though technically usury was something that was sort of frowned upon, they did it. They did it anyway. Um, and they did it sometimes to really powerful people, say to kings in the Greek world, or to an entire province. They would lend money to provinces as well. So um, one of Nero's mates, actually Nero's teacher, Seneca the Younger, who was the richest man in the ancient world at his time, um, was also a, a philosopher who somehow persuaded himself that it was fine to be fabulously wealthy because three days a year he could go and live with just one slave in a room. So he knew what it was like to be poor. Uh, Seneca, <laughs> uh, Seneca would uh, lend money to the entire province of Gaul. Like, that's how rich he was. He, wow, could, he, right. could, he could underwrite a whole province. <laughs> that's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. I'm going to pick you up on that financial stuff in a GIF, but I just want to take you back to um, a little bit more about like what you said about uh, the agricultural lands, because it's sort of important to think about um, this in terms of Rome was still like it was still a very agrarian styled economy, wasn't it? 
um, that's what their base was. Um, and it all, a lot of the commerce, what I understand, it was centered around the trading of, you know, commodities such as, you know, um, you know grains and wines and that sort of stuff, wasn't it? Absolutely, yes. So uh, they're either growing it themselves or they're trading it in. And it is, um, you know, it's subsidized. It's subsistence. That's the important thing. And some people are barely getting by or maybe not getting by, not subsiding. But it's really important to have these uh, these crops or these or, or wine or olive oil. That's another mm-hmm. really big one to be importing that or to be creating it yourself. Honey is, a, is another really important product for, for them. But yeah, it's all these products that need to be brought into Rome or to, to other places around the empire. Um, and that's really what the empire runs on. And within the city of Rome itself, it's what the emperor needs to provide, grain in particular, because if there isn't grain, then there might be riots, and that's bad for any leader. You've got to, and they actually have this thing called the corn dole, or we call it the, the corn dole in Britain, and corn means something else <laughs> on the other side of the Atlantic, um, but the grain dole, I guess, which um, seems to begun, begin sometime in the Republic, where they hand out grain to the poor in times of need. So this is a kind of early form of welfare state. Yeah, that social welfare program, I was stunned to read about that. That's um, even the way in which some of those programs included, you know, well, the subsidisation of food, um, education, uh, expenses for the needy, etc. Wasn't it? It was sometimes in uh, under some of the emperors. It was quite extensive. Yeah, it it, it builds up, and it and it's um, it's a program that means that there are benefits for the emperor as well, because he doesn't want a hungry city or a hungry empire even um, taking umbrage at him. Um, if he can feed the populace, then this will make him popular and mm. keep him in power. He needs to keep the people in the army happy. You know those those video games where you have to make sure your whole territory <laughs> is it. happy? Yes. This, is the, this is exactly what the uh, the Roman emperor is doing. Um, and the, the corn dole, the grain dole, is a really important part of that. And later on it just becomes money that they hand out. Um, and they'll, they'll do something similar whenever there's a big celebration as well, lay on food for the ordinary people. So have a kind of banquet, a sort of street party uh, to, to celebrate a triumph or the emperor's birthday or whatever it is. So it's a kind of relate that um, subsistence to, uh, to imperial rule, to have that. Um, they talk about them, they call them beneficium. It's kind of good deeds. The, the emperor does good deeds for you. And then they celebrate that. They they commemorate it in monuments to remind you. So there's a yeah. triumphal arch, and normally a triumphal arch is about we've won a huge battle, we've won a war, and mm-hmm. let's put a big inscription up saying we defeated the Dacians or the Germans or whoever it is. Um, and, you know, then in the triumph, the prisoners will have to march underneath it, which is a reminder that they've been conquered by Rome. But there's one in southern Italy at a place called Beneventum, um, which the Emperor Trajan put up, which is to commemorate his benefactions his good deeds to that city so they're kind of using this military monument but in a way that's about how great the emperor is for us interesting and if if i lived on a farm could i just pack up and just move to the city of rome or vice versa if i lived in the city of rome could i just pack up and move onto a farm is it was was society free to to move and change like that i think it'd be easier to move to the city because if Mm -hmm. you move to a farm you need to have that land and uh, 
we talked last time about the big crisis in land towards the end of the Republic. Um, and people did. And that, but it has to be said, as far as we know, they usually did it because the land wasn't working for them anymore. Either they'd lost yeah. their land. Um, in the civil wars, people often had their land taken away from them if they were on the wrong side. Um, or they'd lost it in some other way, um, maybe in a, in debt. Um, so they usually end up in the city, and I guess this is true throughout history, um, because they need to subsist. And at least in the city, they're, they're going to get that grain dole. It's much easier yeah. to get it there. There'll be a local magistrate. Um, and they can probably find some work, hopefully. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of desperados in the city of Rome. Not all, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah, the people yeah. who've had to leave their land. And we, we have a lot of sad poems about people from, you know, supposedly from the point of view of people who've been thrown off their land and cast off and hope that the emperor will bring them joy when they go to the city. So I would say definitely that way. If it works the other way, then it's usually because somebody powerful has given you some land. Yeah. So again, yeah. and I know this is a poet, poetic um, example again, but the poet Horace, whose father was a freedman, which means his father had been a slave. So mm -hmm. he had come from very humble origins. He became basically the kind of poet laureate of the Roman Empire uh, under the time of Augustus. And one of Augustus's mates was his patron, and he gave him a Sabine farm. And the Sabine oh, wow. territory is very close to Rome, beautiful, beautiful rolling countryside. But he had this farm, which he, you know, he could never have dreamed of when his father had been a slave because he was in favor with the regime. So there wouldn't have been many people getting that. You'd have to be pretty special. Pretty special, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. It's, I mean, I guess it's no different to today, though, is it? I mean, a lot of that um, wealth is redistributed through favors and networks and, and who you know, isn't it, that um, give people a one-up. But... You mentioned before, I want to pick you up on your, 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 where you started to go down the line of talking about credit, et cetera, because um, you said about usury, et cetera. And um, again, my limited understanding is that a lot of the lending that, well, some of the, it makes a lot, uh, some of the lending that went on, um, especially between rich and powerful um, uh, families was often done without any form of interest being paid, but on the basis that they were in debt to you, that there was um, more of a uh, you know a social obligation and a bit of one-upmanship sort of thing there, wasn't there? Yeah, it, it's there's whole networks amongst the rich of people doing favors for other people. It's true. So um, two different things I want to talk about here. One is with those extremely wealthy; they're doing business deals together and yes it's it's useful to that to them to have somebody that powerful owe you a massive favor basically mm. Mm. so you don't necessarily need interest because of that and also you know there is a bit of this amongst the senatorial band in particular this is my elite in group so i i might have enemies within it i probably do but um if if these are people within my faction we might call it then i want them to do well yeah. so i'm going to help them out i'm going to make sure their son is well educated or you know they've they've got um the appropriate means for educate for um entertaining the populace if they've gone for this role as a magistrate so there's all of that going on amongst that little network of men at the top and sometimes women getting involved as well during the republic in in mm -hmm. kind of power behind the throne 
Um, but there's also a whole system of what we call the patron-client relationships. I can't remember if I talked about this last time. No, so no. Um, whereby, and this happens at all kinds of levels. So the senators would be acting as patrons to others, but all the way down the ranks of society, slightly more powerful people have what we call clients. And we don't, it's not the same. It's like a lot of ancient terminology we use in ancient history. It's yeah. not what we mean by clients. It means people who are um, sub, almost subservient to you. They're not slaves, um, but they are not at your level and they owe you respect. And Wouldn't this that be almost like a men- like a mentorship that we would think of in today's terms? You could, if you were kind, I think you could think of it like that. Yes, it would be in some in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. See, I was going along the mafia lines, <laughs> <laughs> which I think I think we brought up last time. Um, in it, so what would happen is if you are a reasonably powerful guy patrons eat. Actually, you can have women who are patrons too, so I shouldn't say that. But for for men, there's kind of a ritual, a daily ritual where the clients will all come and gather at your door and wait until you're willing to open the door and they can pay their respects. And the more clients you have gathering around your door, the more prestige you've got. So it's kind of a mark of, it's, it's. Uh, I, I know okay. we talked last time about conspicuous consumption. This is another conspicuous way of saying I'm an important person. And what these clients do is if you stand for office, they're going to vote for you and they're going to encourage other people to vote for you. Um, if you, they're going to kind of big you up and back you up. Say you're on trial. The Romans are obsessed with law cases. Then they will come and testify for you. And what they get back for that is, well, potentially money or loans. Um, they will get recommended for certain roles. So there is a kind of, uh, there's a quid pro quo to use a Latin yeah, term. Yeah. You get, yeah. You're getting something for each other. And there is a theory that there is no equal friendship in, in Roman culture at all. So, and, and I'm not sure I completely subscribe to this theory, but that everybody is kind of, ha- whatever relationship they have with someone else, it's always somebody who's got more prestige and somebody else who needs to buy into that prestige, who needs to, to kind of... Um, it's almost like they're, although the Romans hated this word, but they're sort of parasites on that more important person. And that more important person also needs them to show that they are important. Yeah. So they've got this two-way relationship going on. But, um, and, I, and I know you're, I feel like I've got a long way away from property, which is what your podcast's about, but it, it might be important so that if you want to get some property, your patron might lend you the money or recommend that, you know, you should be allowed to do this or draw up the legal documents for you. So it's, it's one of the things that kind of oils the wheels of business and society working for ancient Rome. It's all about this. Who do you know? It's just a different form of credit, really, isn't it? It's just a almost like a human credit rather than a monetary credit. That um, yeah. I mean, that's the way in which I would I would look at it, and certainly that idea of um, you know, for us, you know, we need to obviously be able to um, uh, obtain credit to be able to purchase um, property, etc. I mean, it's the it it goes down the same lines as from what I would say, um, and, and on that wine too the idea of of fiat money within the um roman uh, empire that that all that their coinage etc uh or the money that they use was was gold coins usually um you know that um embossed with the 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 emperor to to create more prestige and 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 remind the 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 people of what he has done for the for the you know for them etc but i understand that 
um, that quite a bit of um, a lot of money exchanged hands without the physical coinage changing hands, like we would today. We'd use promiscuity notes and that sort of stuff. Do you understand? Or have you come across much of that in your research um, of the Roman Empire? I know that it happened, um, but I also know that coinage is really, really important. And I, so, yeah, there, there are definitely. I mean, they don't they don't have electronic banking exactly, but they do have that paper exchange that you're talking about. Without having, I mean, it's not paper money as we think of paper money. Um, and they also have bartering. So, you know, sometimes there's no money involved at all. Um, and and who knows, that may well have, I mean, the Romans had a, a really, really significant taxation system and uh, that might have been a way of getting around some of that taxation. But yeah, that is going on. You're right, though, that the coinage is very significant socially and politically because um, it's a there is gold coinage, but also a lot of silver. Um, and when we get to the much later period, beyond which I, I know a lot about, um, but I know that they start to talk about the coinage being degraded because there's just mm -hmm. less and less silver. So it yeah. becomes worth less and less and they have a big economic crisis in the third century. Um, but yeah, it bears the image of the emperor. And it kind of is, uh, well, they weren't the very first to do this, but I think that the British and therefore Australia is kind of drawing on that Roman coinage when we put the queen's head on the coinage. Um, because they have, I mean, we've had our queen for a very long time. They had a, a much greater turnover of emperors and, you know, a lot of illiterate people throughout the empire. This is a way of telling people who's in charge. So this coinage that is flowing through the empire um, is a, a great way of, you know, you've got the emperor's head on one side, the other side, you might have um, a sheaf of corn. Oh, look, the emperor has provided us with prosperity and a way yeah, of filling okay. our stomach. Or maybe you'll have, now that we wouldn't do this, this is very tasteless to us, um, but some northern barbarian in chains sitting under a tree, you know, looking like they're about to be dragged off to uh, imprisonment and death. So yes, yes. It, it tells you, oh, look, the emperor is so great. He's conquered this bit of Romania. Um, so it's it's a propaganda device, absolutely. What would happen when one emperor overthrew another? Would there, or there was a change of emperor, would they remint the coins or would they continue to circula circulate? They, they do continue to circulate, but they, um, they're constantly making new coins and new issues. And it's not just the emperor issuing them so um there, there might be a local issuer um and uh it, it matters what you put on a coin and in fact if we go i am going just before the emperors now but um in the first century bce uh the rest of italy decided it had enough of rome and they issued their own coins and they the romans tended to put the wolf on their coins the mm -hmm. she-wolf who had suckled romulus and remus and the italians put a bull on there and that was kind of their ball going up against the wolf, the Italian. Yeah. Um, and they, th this was part of their propaganda in uh, a war for citizenship. They wanted full citizenship and they, they actually got it. So what you put on the coin can indicate that you've got a new emperor. Um, and we know this is really important because I talked about Nero dying violently. After he died, there was civil war and the Romans had four emperors in one year, 69, the year of the four emperors. And each of those emperors put out coinage, even the ones who only lasted a couple of months. And you'd think you've got civil war going on. Yeah. You know, you're trying to establish yourself. Do you have time to put out coinage? Well, they did. They knew how important it was to get that image around. So yeah. it's it's clearly very, very important for them.
what sort of dom- denominations would those coins be working in? Like, you know, if I wanted to um, buy a drink at a tavern, for example, um, you know, how does how would that work? As uh, or if I wanted to buy um, a new cart or something, then do you know what I'm getting at? Um, you know, here we've got obviously a very vast denomination of currencies and digitally now, you know, makes life very easy. But back then would have been much more difficult. And I imagine from a from an emperor's point of view that they would have wanted to uh, mint high denomination coins for the prestige value. Yeah, um, they've got something called the denarius, which is the, the main coin that gets used and the sestercius a four sesterti to a denarius and these are the two main coins it's very very hard to make a modern equivalence because uh you know um what do they they talk about a soldier being paid Ooh, I actually i've got about- one for you about the soldier being paid um that's that a lot of soldiers from my understanding again got paid in salt which is where the term not worth um, his weight in salt comes from. Yeah, I think that's probably true. The one that apparently isn't true, but I wish it were, is that it's where the the Roman word for salt is sal, and it's where the word salary comes from. But apparently Ah. that's not true, which is very disappointing. (laughs) I've heard it's a false false etymology. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I derailed you. You're under coins. No, no, no. I was going to say from memory, and this is memory, I'm afraid, that the Roman soldier got paid around uh, 300 sesterci a year. Um, And out of that, they had to buy their equipment. So that's, uh, and now if you compare that to, to be in the Roman Senate, you needed to have a million sesterci. Right. That That was just entry. And a lot of them had a lot more. So kind of property at least, and actually, no, not just property. You needed that kind of cash. So, so that's they the would, wealth difference. They would pay a million to get a seat on the Senate. Is that how they it would work? Or would... They didn't pay it. They just had to have it. They just had, they had to have, to have it. Have that so property. they had to be a standing of wealth to, to stand in the Senate. Yeah. And, and each of the grades you go down is graded by property. So um, – and this affects how important how much your vote is worth because if you're in the Romans divided themselves into colleges for voting only male citizens could vote um, and to be in the kind of highest tier college then you need to be in that senatorial band so you need to have that million sesterces and then you kind of go down gradations the next one down is equestrian we call it and originally it's thought that means you had enough money to own and keep a horse and be mm-hmm. in the cavalry. And then you go down, you know, various levels, and they're all based on how much you own. And if you are in the top category there, then you get to vote in that band, in that electoral college. It's a little bit like the American system of voting for a president. Um, But what it means is, you know, like in the American system, California gets 55 votes and Alaska gets three, I think it is. Yep. Well, that's based on population. But for the Romans, it's based on wealth. So if you're in the senatorial band, your vote is worth a lot more than if you're in the very lowest property band. So that means your vote is worth more if you have more money. So your wealth, your property has a direct corollary with how much influence you have on the political system. And they go and vote 
in these in these kind of um, these colleges. And quite often, by the time they get to the third college down, they don't really need to vote anymore because it's been decided. Yeah. And this is votes that count for who's going to be your consul next year to shall we pass this law? So, yeah. you know, it's sort of a democracy, but it's a democracy that's very much <laughs> skewed towards the wealthy. And this is why we end up with an oligarchy, with the rule of the few during the Republic. Um, and that once the emperor comes in, they kind of stop doing that. They don't even have the facade of democracy. Um, yeah. He just he names the consul and then somebody kind of seconds it and that's it. And that's it. We're done. Yeah. Time for lunch. <laughs> Indeed. It's not so simple. With... <laughs> so Dictatorship with then... is simpler. <laughs> So with that then, Rhiannon, um, when you say it was based on wealth and, and land, etc., cetera, um, would that be determined by uh, the acreage that one would control or would there be a value put on your assets, as in um, your, your pastures or, or your acreage is more productive and hence more valuable than mine so you you know your 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 land is worth more than mine yeah it's the value of land it's not just you can't just have a kind of vast swathe of desert um mm. and and it's kind of intertwined because if your land's more productive then you're worth more anyway and we don't know exactly how that calculation was done i'm afraid but it, yeah it, it you know if you own land in campania which was considered very fertile like southern italy not like now southern italy was kind of the wealthy bit of italy yeah um and the north was sort of vaguely barbarian as opposed mm. to now you know milan is very fancy and the south is quite poor um but if you had land there then it's worth a lot more it's it's yeah. worth what someone will pay for it just like now yeah it's amazing isn't it how i mean um you know there's a lot we can learn from from rome isn't there there's uh, and a lot more ties. I'm, I'm sure. Well, as you, as I said when I first asked you, 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 you tried to duck and weave coming on to uh, join me in this podcast. And I hope I've now got you thinking about how intertwined, you know, land um, actually is, and um, you know how many similarities there are in you know Roman society, and certainly with regards to Roman land to what there is today. Yeah, I mean, I think about the similarities and the differences that, yeah. uh, and, and I'm quite glad about some of those differences, like that one I just mentioned that you're... The coinage, yeah. Yeah, the coinage, uh, that your, you know, your ability to be politically active doesn't depend on having uh, a huge estate, but also, and, and some things that we don't know, but seem very similar. So um, the the whole kind of stacking of, uh, I guess, economic power, in certain groups who who yeah. will help each other out. I think there are potential similarities there. And also the ability to, to build, uh, at least for a certain period, for a few centuries, a society that um, sort of works for a lot of people. We must never forget that there are people being kind of, you know, having their land taken away, having their whole um, autonomy taken away if they're slaves but it's a society that works for itself for a few centuries because of this combination of organization and technological advancement and 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 a political system that uh, that kind of enforces this so it's 
it's it's not a time I would like to have lived. No, no. It, it is one that is highly organized, and there is something to that, that that it allowed for a certain quality of life if you were in the right place at the right time. Well, it was a very brutal society, wasn't it? It was a very brutal time to be, it was. To, yeah. to be living, and it really was, um, you know, a winner-takes-alls style of society, wasn't it, that – um, not only with the Roman Empire themselves, with uh, you know the the invasions and and the taking of land, etc., but all the way through to to the emperors themselves, that um, you know they were um, regularly um, removed through physical force, weren't they? There was a lot of stabbings, etc., within the Senate. That you know, uh, it's um yeah, not too nice, really. But you know the um the the technological advancements and their organisation and um and the way in which they um uh you know grew as a city, it's 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 pretty pretty amazing sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it would be amazing to be in a time machine to be able to go back, apart from the smell, um, but <laughs> to uh, see those buildings not having been pillaged by mm. later uh, centuries. So, you know, to have seen the Colosseum in all of its glory, and I'm sure some of your listeners have seen the movie Gladiator, which does try and recreate it. I'm not sure the special effects have aged that well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's really hard to do. So uh, I guess the best we can hope for is that virtual reality hurries up and gets better and we can travel back through that. Rhiannon, we might wrap it up there because I've got the feeling you and I could sit here and talk for a lot longer about this. And I'm actually hoping to actually have you back because there's actually, you know, there is a lot more about Rome. It's, um, um, you know, it's a fantastic example of, um, you know, the way in which, as I said, you know, history, you know, shows us, you know, what shows us we can learn a lot from history and and certainly we can learn a lot about what the future beholds that you know the whole idea of the corruption the technological innovations the war the thefts the infrastructure urbanization that occurred within the roman um, empire the lamb grabs slum landlords um, the impact of government i mean there's just so many things aren't there um you know that we've seen before um, that we see today and the future will hold for us uh, for tomorrow. And as I've said many, many times, it's so important that we view history in the context of its time, that what we see as a very primitive aqueduct system was, you know, that high um, tech, you know, 5G as, of its time. So I've got to say, you know, a big thank you um, for joining me um, and a big thanks to your husband for encouraging you to uh, to join me. And if listeners would like to hear more from you, where can they go, Rhiannon? The main uh, podcast that we have is called Emperors of Rome. And Adam, what was that? Emperors of Rome. Just making sure <laughs> we make it clear, the Emperors of Rome. <laughs> yeah, um, and it has a Facebook page. So if you just look it up there, uh, it also has a Twitter account, at Rome Podcast. And uh, if you go to the facebook page then you'll see that um the host of the podcast or the co-host matt smith also has various um kind of offshoot podcasts so he has called one called when in rome which is kind of about the structures the monuments um and occasionally we have offshoots that are about say a particular literary work or a war we're going through caesar's gallic wars at the moment the both the war and the work that he wrote um, but we'd love to have more listeners to Emperors of Rome. And I'm also really thrilled that um, given that I wouldn't have expected a property podcast to be interested in Rome, that you invited me to come on and talk about this. It was lots of fun. 
Oh, and I've got to say, I would highly recommend um, your podcast, The Emperor's of Rome. There's a lot, as I said, there's a lot to learn from it. And I just say to all our listeners, when you listen to the podcast, just think of it in the context of our five drivers, because you know they're the the, the continual themes that you'll see um, throughout that podcast. Rhiannon, you've also written a book, Caesar's Triumphs um, Over Gaul and Rome. So that's, of course, available on the Latrobe website. Thank it you. It is. It's yeah, a freebie. It's an ebook that you can just download through from Latrobe through our e bureau, as it's called. But if you just look up, uh, I co wrote oh. it with my colleague Sarah Midford. So, um, yeah, Caesar's Triumphs over Gaul and Rome, which is it's got about all kinds of things, including Caesar's views on ethnicity, so other people, Ooh. and also the way he uses and abuses the celebration that we call the triumph. Um, and uh, we did. We wrote that book and wanted it to be free for people, so it's available to students, but also just people who are interested in Rome. It's written very much with the, the kind of um, with an enthusiast in mind. You don't have to be. You don't have to have done a degree in classics to read it. Well, again, I'll put the link in the show notes for everyone. Um, and again, I'd encourage you to to, to have a look because it is quite an interesting read, Rhiannon. Thank you again for our Roman land discussion. I've really enjoyed it, and I hope you've had a bit of fun today as well. Yeah, indeed, Jeremy. Thanks so much. And for everyone, for all our listeners, thanks for joining us. If you've had some fun and you have learned something, then make sure you like, subscribe, or leave us a review or rating for Property Australia's favourite obsession, Rhiannon Nevins, the Emperor of Rhone. It's been my pleasure. I've been your host, Jeremy Cowan, and until next time, let's keep obsessing about property. Any opinions or recommendations expressed should be considered general in nature, as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. History and past performance do not guarantee future performance. Jeremy Cowan and Cowan and Flack Proprietary Limited are authorised representatives of PGW Financial Services, Proprietary Limited, AFSL 384713.